Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. It was the Feast of Tabernacles, a very important festival in Israel. You were required to present yourself in Jerusalem during this festival. You were required for three different festivals during the year. This was one of them. This one required you to be there for eight days. The first day was a Sabbath day. And before you rested on this Sabbath day, you had to arrive in Jerusalem or within an accepted proximity. When you were there, you had to set up a tabernacle, a temporary dwelling place. And this had to be constructed of four different plants. The laws are very explicit concerning how this tabernacle needed to be constructed. It was a temporary dwelling place, and you had to have this constructed and ready to go for the first day of the festival because it was a Sabbath day, and you were expected to rest on that Sabbath day there in your tabernacle. And then there would be eight days following that, and on the eighth day there would be an additional Sabbath day where you were expected to dwell there in your tabernacle, in your temporary dwelling place. And then after that day, you were free to return to your home. Now, during this festival, it was expected that everyone would be present there in Jerusalem, in the entire nation of Israel, with the exception of perhaps some of the ladies and the children. The men were required to present themselves there in Jerusalem. They would be there to deliver their tithes, their offerings. They would be there to present themselves before the Lord. During this time, there were two main ceremonies that would take place. There were many ceremonies that took place, but there were two primary ceremonies that took place. One of the ceremonies was the ceremony of the lights, where they would light the lampstands, many lampstands, inside of the temple compound during this festival. It has been said that the light that emanated from the temple, from these lampstands being lit, was so intense that it illuminated the entire city, the entire community. That's how much light they generated during this festival as part of the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. But the other ceremony, which is significant for what I'm going to be talking about in these programs, was the ceremony of the outpouring of the water. The outpouring of the water had to do with the priests walking down to the Pool of Siloam, they would gather up some water and then they would carry it up to the Temple Mount. They would bring it into the court of the Gentiles. And there were a set of steps that were there. They were set up in a semicircle. And there were 15 of them and they would go up these steps. For each step that they would take, they would take one step up these set of steps. And they would sing a psalm on each one of these steps as they would ascend into the inner court. The psalms that they would sing were Psalms 120 to 134, one psalm for each step that they would take. In some Bibles, these are labeled as the Psalms of Ascent, and that's what they were referring to, was the ascending up into the inner court, and they would bring this water that they had acquired from the Pool of Siloam 
up into the inner court, and they would pour it out before the base of the altar there in the temple. Now, the reason why I mention this specific ceremony in this case is because the Pool of Siloam was the location where the Lord Jesus told the man who was born blind to go to in order to wash the mud that Jesus had placed over his eyes, wash that off. He was healed there at the Pool of Siloam. That's the significance with relevance to what I'm going to be talking about in these programs. But what I want you to understand is that this was a very important ceremony to the extent where the people would set up their tabernacles in various locations so that they could see the priests walking back and forth from the Pool of Siloam to the temple with this water. They would carry it in a procession, and it was part of the celebration. It was part of the festivities of the festival. And so people would set their tabernacles up set themselves up, position themselves so that they could have a good view, a good view of the priests traveling up and down this path every day, once a day, during this festival. So a lot of people would, of course, go there, perhaps a little bit in advance, in order to try to get a good spot, a good seat, and so that they could have a good view of this procession as they would travel back and forth. It was just part of the festival that they were there to attend, to participate in. Now, the Lord Jesus was there, of course. He was required to be there by law. In John chapter 7, he had a conversation with his brothers, though. His brothers told him to go to the festival, and he said, No, I'm not going to go. You go ahead. In John chapter 7, verse 8, it says, You go up to this feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee, But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. And then we can read from there what happens around the middle of the feast. He goes in the temple. He starts teaching. I believe it was at that time that his disciples found out that he was there. And they, of course, would be there according to the law. They're going to observe and obey the law. Jesus obeyed the law. He was there every year. He was expected to be there, and he fulfilled that requirement. And we can continue to read in John chapter 7 and John chapter 8 what he did during that time. But what I would like to talk about in this program is what happened and what was recorded in John chapter 9 with regards to the healing of the man who was born blind. Now, considering the description that we have here, I believe it's reasonable to say that the man who was born blind and the Lord Jesus were around the remote proximity They were around the area, the geographical area of the Pool of Siloam. One of the main reasons why I'm willing to suggest that is because I don't think that the Lord Jesus would ask the blind man to travel that far in order to get to the Pool of Water. It was a popular pool. It was the public pool. It was the very place where people would go in order to ritually cleanse themselves with water before going to the temple. If you were ritually unclean, according to the law, for whatever reason, and there were many reasons that a person could become ritually unclean, many of the laws required a person to bathe or take a bath. This was a very popular pool where people would go and they would fulfill the requirement of the law concerning the ritual cleansing, according to the law, in various circumstances. This pool was at the bottom of the city, geographically speaking. It was right in front of the gate of the Essenes. This, of course, was a very important gate in history. But in this case, what I would like to suggest is that the Lord Jesus was near this gate. He found the blind man somewhere near this gate. 
and the pool of Siloam was not very far away from this gate either. And so to me, this is a reasonable assumption that I can make concerning this circumstance. One of the reasons why I would like to think that he was at this gate is because this was the very gate that King David went through when he first took the city. And it's just my personal desire that I would like to think that the Lord Jesus was thinking about that at this time when he was there nearby this gate. When King David made war in order to take Jerusalem, he went through this gate. And I think that there's a good description of this because of the way that the water system flowed there in Jerusalem. But in Second Samuel chapter 5, beginning in verse 5, I'll begin in verse 5. This is Second Samuel chapter 5. Verse 5, it says, In Hebron, referring to King David, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem he reigned thirty-three years over all Israel and Judah. But in verse 6, it describes him taking Jerusalem, and the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who spoke to David, saying, You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will repel you thinking, David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And in verse 8, Now David said on that day, Whoever climbs up by way of the water shaft and defeats the Jebusites, this is one of the reasons why I believe it's the gate of Essenes. There are many other reasons. But what I would like to suggest is that it certainly would be nice to consider that maybe Jesus was thinking about King David taking this city to begin with, going through this gate and being told that even the blind and the lame would repel him. And the reason why I would like to think about this is because Jesus found the blind man, the man who was blind, born blind, there in reasonable proximity of this gate, being confronted with this blind man, remembering what was told to King David, but this blind man would not repel the Lord Jesus. Instead, through a miracle that he would perform, this blind man would be used by the Lord Jesus in order to push his way into the culture, into the society, into the religious leadership, and they certainly would not be able to successfully repel this man and his testimony. And so beginning in John chapter 9, It says, Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, this is an interesting question. For them to ask him one of two possibilities. This man is blind because of sin, apparently. And it's either because of his parents' sin or it's because of his sin that he was born blind. Now, the reason why they ask this question of the Lord Jesus is because this is what the Pharisees taught. They taught that if a person was born blind, it was because of their sin, which means that it was a divine judgment of God because of sin. This is what they taught. A divine judgment of God. And so if it was a divine judgment of God, it had to be because of either his parents' sin or it was because of his sin. Now, in general, when they were confronted with this kind of a circumstance, it would not be very appealing to suggest it was because of the parent's sin. And the main reason why is because 
The parents were probably productive members of society. They were probably active members of the synagogue to some extent. And so, if the religious leadership decided to condemn the parents and say your child was born blind because of your sin, well, they may not take that very well. They may be offended by that. And of course, if they're offended by that, then it may not be very likely that they'll contribute as much as they were contributing before. They might not give as much of their resources as they were giving before. They might hold back a little bit. Or completely. I mean, why would they want to contribute to someone telling them that they were so guilty in this way? Especially if they can't point out specifically what this sin is. Eventually, a person will feel isolated. They will feel rejected to the extent where they simply will not want to participate a whole lot with the community, and that could be a loss to the influence, the power, and of course the resources. Of the religious leadership, and so in general, this was not the direction that they would take. In general, they would say it would be because of the child's sin that they were born blind. It's because of their sin. They are responsible for their own sin. The Lord is not going to pass this kind of judgment on the child because of someone else's sin. In this case, their parents. And so, probably, or we could suggest a little bit more that the. Likelihood of sin would probably have come from the child himself, but if this is the case, then how can we say that the child committed sin before they were born? Do they believe in reincarnation or something? Are they propagating reincarnation ideas? No, that certainly is not the case. There is no evidence whatsoever that the belief of reincarnation ever had a place. During any time in history, except of course during the modern age, where there are a lot of Jews today who do believe in reincarnation, but back then that certainly was not the position of the people. It certainly was not an option. So how could he have sinned? Well, what they taught was that the child could have committed a sin in the mother's womb. He could have done that. For example, it's not unusual for a child to kick its mother. He might be stretching his legs, or he might be waking up. Who knows what he might be doing? But in general, he might be kicking or hitting his mother in some way. And it's possible, there is a possibility, that he did that out of animosity. He might have been woken up at a time that he didn't want to be woken up. He might be a little disappointed about something that his mother did, or. What his mother ate, and so he was very disturbed about that, and he decided to exercise some retaliation of some kind in order to express himself, in order to present himself as having some value and authority in the world. Who knows what his attitude might be concerning that? It's not important. The issue is, is that he did it out of anger or out of animosity. He intentionally decided, "I am going to hurt you because I don't like what you did." This kind of an idea. If that was the case, then this could be recognized as a sin. And of course, because the divine has the capacity to determine whether or not this sin was committed, then the divine himself could exercise judgment against this sin and cause the child to be blind. This could be done as an exercise of punishment, but it can also be perceived as a way of protecting the society that the child is about to become a member of. He's about to become a part of. The Lord will make sure that he will be somewhat limited with regards to 
what kind of an impact or how he may be able to participate in the society he's going to be a part of. If he is this kind of a person, then the Lord might restrain him a little bit, limit his capacity a little bit, just to ensure that there is a reduction of sin, because if he doesn't, then there could be a lot of sin that this person could commit, because this is the kind of person that we have. And so they taught that the child could commit sin in his mother's womb by kicking his mother out of animosity, and the Lord would exercise judgment against this sin and cause him to be born blind as judgment and as a means of protecting the society that he was going to enter into. So the man who was born blind was looked at in this way for his whole life. During his entire life, of growing up and then of becoming an adult and being there in the society, in the city, among the people, he would be reminded of this quite often, either directly or indirectly. He would be reminded that he is an evil, sinful person who they all need protection from. And the Lord has provided his divine protection by making sure that he cannot see because he is an evil, sinful, wicked person. That's the kind of message that he would have lived with for his entire life. So when the disciples asked Jesus about this, this is where they're coming from. They're coming from what was taught, what was believed by the people. They asked him this question, and he answered in verse 3. This is John chapter 9, verse 3. Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Now that is a unique message. And if the man heard him say that, that would have been the greatest thing that he has ever heard in his entire life. Nothing could have been greater to him than to hear that. For Jesus himself to stand there in front of him and say, You are not blind because of your sin. You're not blind because of your parents' sin. That is not why you are blind. It has nothing to do with that at all. People have been telling you this your whole life. You've been believing this your whole life. They've been telling you that you are this wicked, evil person. And I am here to tell you that that is a lie. That that is not the truth. That no matter what people have said about you and said to you and how they have treated you and how they have related to you, it's a lie. It's not real. It's not the way things are. It's never been that way. And I am here to tell you that not only has it never been that way, but the Lord Jesus was there in order to perform a work of God. He said, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. We don't know how old this man was, but if I was to suggest that he was a man and he had plenty of years under his belt that he had lived, if I was to suggest that, this would be significant to hear that he has lived his whole life this way for this one moment. That the moment has finally come. It has finally arrived. A moment that he did not even know existed. He had no idea that this was a plan of God, that this was a work of God, that this is something that the Lord had organized, had orchestrated, and that this was the moment when the Lord would reveal 
something in him. He would use him, and he would use him in this way through the blindness that he has. He says, but that the works of God should be revealed. He goes on and he says, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. He came back, which tells me that he probably had not gone very far. He knew where things were at. He was able to get around reasonably. This area was relatively small. He could get around and make this happen. But what I want you to understand is that this was an opportunity for the work of God to be revealed. First, a correction to this theological belief, but that there would also be an opportunity to testify of the living God because of what just happened, because this miracle took place. Now, a lot of people have noticed this spitting on the ground and making clay, and there is some truth to that, that the Pharisees taught that it was not a good idea to spit on the ground and make clay. Now, of course, if you were to ask them, is there anything wrong with spitting on the ground, they would say, no, nothing wrong with spitting on the ground at all. Is there anything wrong with making some clay because you spit on the ground? No, they would say there's nothing wrong with that at all. But there is great risk, enormous risk in spitting on the ground because if you do make clay, there is the chance that someone might kick a stone or because they are walking past this clay, they might move the stones in such a way that two stones might be bound together with this clay joining the stones together, in which case work would have been performed. You will have constructed some building materials that could have been used, that could be used, in order to put these two stones together, in which case you would be guilty of violating the Sabbath law because you will have done work by building something. And so it's perfectly fine to spit on the ground, but there is great risk in doing so. And so in order to cope with this risk, in order to accommodate this risk, They encouraged people to spit on a rock instead in order to reduce the risk of violating the Sabbath law by making clay. Now, of course, the Lord Jesus does this, and he puts it on the man's eyes, uses it as a form of medicine in order to be a part of this healing that he is performing. So in doing this, by using it as medicine, he is violating the Sabbath law, not just by making the clay, but actually using it in this capacity, healing this man, and this is not a life-threatening situation. Jesus could have waited one more day. He could have waited until after the festival, because this was the eighth day of the festival. It was a Sabbath day. He was not permitted to do this kind of work on this day, but he does it anyway, violating their law, I do not believe that he has violated the law of the Sabbath as Moses defined it, but he was violating it as the Pharisees defined it. They did have an additional position that is relevant to this passage that I would also like to briefly mention, and that is in the Talmud, in Shabbat 108, Folio B, there is a description concerning putting something on someone's eyes in order to help their eyes heal, It's a description of medicinal applications. You could put an ointment or saliva on someone's eyes in order to help their eyes if they've got an eye problem of some kind. 
but they said that you could not put it in the eyes. And so this could be a translational issue. Did he anoint the eyes? Did he put it on his eyes? Or did he put it in his eye? If he put it on his eye and he blinked a little bit and it fell into his eyes, if the saliva fell into his eyes, then that would be considered to be acceptable as was described in Shabbat 108 Folio B. So we do have a discussion of this in the Talmudic writings, the writings of the rabbis, that could perhaps apply in this case, but it doesn't say anything about the mud. It's referring to the saliva itself. And so I'm not very confident that this discussion would have some relevance to what the Lord Jesus was doing. I believe that their case or their concern with regards to the healing that took place had to do with him making the mud and putting it on his eyes, not the saliva as was described in the Talmudic reference that I just gave. But I did want to mention that that is something that is referenced in the Talmud that could potentially have been taught either because of what Jesus did or it might have been taught before Jesus did that. It's difficult to say. We don't have enough information to know. But what I do know is that the making of the mud and applying it certainly would qualify as a violation of the Sabbath law according to the Pharisees. So when he goes to testify to the Pharisees about this miracle that has taken place, this is what they are going to be concerned about. They're going to be concerned about how it was done that it was a violation of the Sabbath law, and that this violation has greater importance to them than the healing of the man who was born blind. Now, it's important to also acknowledge that they would need to have something, because if they acknowledged the healing that occurred, then they would have to confess that Jesus was the Messiah. So, in effect, they did need something to go on. They needed some explanation that would justify their position that he is not the Messiah. So it's not just a matter of ensuring that everything is done in such a way that the Pharisees are completely satisfied that the law has been observed. They may use that, but that is not really the core issue. That was an issue that was effectively hiding their greater concern, and that was that they would have to declare that Jesus is the Messiah. I will continue with this in the next program. You have been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 38353, Colorado Springs, Colorado, 80937. Or use the donation link on our website, livinggodministries.net that is livinggodministries.net Thank you,